Uh, it's been a joy for me to be able to work through Genesis with you. I've never preached through this book before. Uh, I've, en- I've loved it, enjoyed it for years, uh, but it's been a privilege to dig in and to learn more. Um, the last time we preached in Genesis was two weeks ago, and we began a new section of the book of Genesis. You remember the, the book is arranged around all of these statements uh, that go, these are the generations of, can also be translated, this is what became of, and then you normally find a person's name. Here the person is Noah, and so what we started two weeks ago was the Noah story. It goes from Genesis 6 and verse 9 the whole way through the end of Genesis chapter 9, the Noah story. So far, this story, we've learned, this story is far from a warm children's story. What we've seen so far is actually a story of terror and fright and severe and utter devastation across the whole world. We've seen uh, two different scenes so far in the story. If you remember, I said I think the Noah story, the Noah and the Ark story is arranged around four scenes. The first scene I called the divine speech scene. At the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, there are two speeches from God to Noah to prepare him and knowing how to build the ark, but then also to prepare him to know uh, when to go into the ark. That first scene gives way to the flood scene so that uh, at the end of chapter 7, what you see are the waters prevailing, the waters increasing in a very vivid way. It's like you can almost feel the waters rising as Moses tells the story. That's the flood scene. This leads to the third scene, and that's what we're going to look at today. The third scene of the flood is just what I would call the waiting scene. The waiting scene with Noah and his family in the ark. Now, as we get into Genesis chapter 8 in this waiting scene, you might wonder, you know, how exciting can an entire scene be about waiting? Imagine a play where the backdrop never changes. You're always in the same place. Well, that's Genesis chapter 8. The backdrop doesn't change. You might think, well, I I don't know how much we'll get from this waiting scene, Genesis 8, but I want to suggest to you that there is much for us to learn as believers and as a congregation from this chapter, and there's much for us to learn, especially if we are going through some sort of prolonged trial or prolonged waiting. And so I want to encourage you to pay close attention, Genesis 8. This has warmed my heart this week. I know it will be a blessing to you as well. And so we'll start into the waiting scene. The waiting scene starts or begins with receding waters in verses 1 through 5. So look at verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So this first movement I, called, I call the receding water. 
this paragraph starts on a positive but a little bit of a mysterious note. When in verse 1, you look down your Bible and you see that it says, God remembered Moses. Or, I'm sorry, Noah. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Dan. God remembered Noah. Okay. The reason I say it's positive but mysterious, what does it mean when it says God remembered Noah? When we hear that English term, we get certain connotations. Does this mean that God had forgotten about Noah? Okay. Of course not. God doesn't forget in that way. But when we hear that English term, sometimes we think that way. We think like, okay, God's in heaven, things are going on, been, you know, a few hundred days. He's like, oh, where's the boat? <laughs> Where is the ark? But that, that's not the way it is with God. God does not remember in that sort of way. Unlike the English word remember, the Hebrew term carries a specific connotation. So when you see this word remembered and you have God remembering something in a covenant setting, what the word remembered means is he decides to act on his former covenant promises. He decides to act. Uh, let me show you that. Uh, in the very next chapter, look at verse 15. The same word will be used here. Genesis 9, 15. God says, I, I will remember, see that word, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Same word, remember. Here, remembering means God's deciding to act on a covenant promise that he had given to Noah. Back in chapter 6, in verse 18, God made a covenant with Noah. So in chapter 8, in verse 1, when it says God remembers Noah, what it means is God decides now to honor the promise and the covenant that he had made with him previously. And so when God remembers like this, he acts. Okay, And the way he acts in verse 1 is he sends a spirit. Uh, or a wind, likely that, that word, Hebrew word ruach could be translated as spirit or wind. He sends a wind to begin to dry out the waters of the earth. And actually, as we continue to look through the, this first part of the paragraph, the rest of verses 1 through 5, the key or the emphasis is upon the waters receding. The waters receding. If you look again at chapter 8 and you look at the verbs, you can see this very clearly. Look at the end of chapter, or uh, verse number 1, it says, and the waters subsided. Look at the beginning of verse 3, and the waters receded. Look at the end of verse 3, the waters had abated. And look at verse 5, and the waters continued to abate. Here the waters are restricting, they're returning, they're withdrawing, so much so in this first paragraph, the ark comes to rest among the mountains of Ararat, which is likely somewhere in modern-day Turkey or southern Russia. So this first paragraph, I, I think the emphasis is very clear. The waters are coming back, they're returning. That leads to the second part of the waiting scene, and uh, this, I think we go from receding water 
to drying land. Okay, so as we read through verses 6 through 14, I'll just have you look for the words dry or dried up, especially at the beginning and end. So uh, let's look at the second part. Look at verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened up the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. This section is about the earth drying out when they were still in the ark. Within this section, uh, you have Noah resorting to some creative means to determine whether or not the earth was dry. He uses birds. And so the first thing he does, he sends forth a, a raven, the raven leaves the ark and never returns. There's a lot that's been written about this. Like you could, you could talk about this for quite a while. I think a raven is a stronger bird, right? And it is also a scavenger bird of prey. And so it's likely that as this raven goes out, a stronger bird, scavenger bird, uh, he is able to find all kinds of food. The thing about ravens, they can eat anything. So he's likely able to find all kinds of food among the floating carcasses from the death of the flood. Perhaps that's where he lodged, remained, one of those carcasses, or perhaps he was strong enough to fly to a mountaintop that was available. The raven is sent out and never comes back. That tells Noah some things, but he decides a little while later to send forth a dove, and the dove flies around. The dove has not as strong, weaker, can't fly as far, isn't a scavenger. The dove flies around for a while, comes back in, has no place to rest. Seven days later, he sends him out and he finds, imagine the excitement when this dove comes back. And I love how the text describes it here. He finds a freshly plucked olive branch. I don't know how they could tell it was freshly plucked. But imagine the excitement. There, there is plant life. There is vegetation. It's beginning again. He decides to send the dove out seven days later, and then the dove doesn't even return. Now, it's been some time since Noah and the crew and these animals have gotten into the ark. As a matter of fact, if you do all the math, okay, if you... Uh, look at verse 13, the 601st year, and you compare it to a section back in Genesis chapter 6, you learn that they have been in the ark 
for a one year and 11 days. One year and 11 days. There's a little bit of controversy about, okay, is it a lunar or a solar year? Doesn't mean a big difference. It's they're in the ark for somewhere between 365 days and 375 days. Okay. Now, how does that strike you, that amount of time? As I thought about that this week, 365 to 375 days in this boat. What do you think about that? The way it strikes me is this was a lengthy, lengthy trial. Perhaps you can relate to a lengthy trial. But there's something else I want you to see about Noah's trial with his family in the ark. It's, it's over a year. I want you to consider, when was the last time in the text that you saw or heard, you, you have referenced to Noah hearing a divine speech? In other words, when was the last time that we know of that God spoke to, to Noah? And the answer is, if you look in the text, you look in chapter 7, it's seven days before all of this started. Okay, so Noah, during this time in the ark, as far as we know, he does not hear from God through divine utterance for the 365 days or 375 days plus seven. How does that strike you? To me, Noah's faithfulness in waiting is so instructive for us in our prolonged troubles. One commentator really helped me here. His name is Kenneth Matthews. And he describes Noah's journey and what it means for us. This is what he said. He said, often in life, troubles come on fast and recede slowly. Have you experienced that? Often in life, troubles come on fast and recede slowly. Maybe you've been working through something for a long time, and you can't seem to get any clear word from God on it. Might I just encourage you this year in the midst of a pandemic and all other sorts of troubles and trials that you might be facing, that the, the whole scripture cries out to you, brother or sister, to have faith in God, to persevere, to be steadfast. God will come to deliver you. You can trust him while you're waiting for deliverance. So this waiting scene goes from receding waters to drying land. But then it moves along in verses 15 through 19 to the, the third phase here, third movement. And I would just call this a departing crew. Look at verse 15. Then God said, here's a divine speech. Something's happening. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out 
with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Okay, this little section here, verse 15 through 19, is is a great section. It emphasizes two things to me, and maybe it does to you as well. The first thing it emphasizes is obedience. I love Noah's obedience all throughout here. Remember back in chapter 6, God gives him plans to build an ark, and he works for, what, over, over 100 years building this thing? And then there's that summary statement in Genesis chapter 6, Noah did this. He did everything that God commanded him. Here in this passage, God says, if you're looking at the verbs, verse 16, go out from the ark. Verse 17, bring out. God says, go out and bring out. And Noah went out and the animals went out. It moves from people to animals, to people to animals. You see that direct relation? God told him to do something. He does it immediately. I sure hope God thinks of us and our lives like he did Noah here. I hope he thinks of me this way. I tell him to do something, he obeys. I ask you, are you obeying in areas where God has clearly given us directives. Perhaps you are feeling trials this year, and you're feeling overwhelmed. Does this kind of humble obedience still describe you in the trial? Because of Noah's obedience this week, I've started something new. I was just really struck by just how, matter of fact, Moses just describes this. Go out, bring out. He went out. They went out. For me personally, this week, I've started, when I get to the office, begin the day, I get down on my knees and say this to God. You are perfect in all of your ways, and I am your servant. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. And I want to glorify you with my body and my spirit, which are yours. You have given to me this day as a gift. God, what do you want me to do today? And God, will you go with me? I need you. I hope when God looks down on us, on you, he says, I told him what to do. He did it. But not only is obedience stressed here, so too is something else. In this little section, verse 15 through 19, that's where I'm at. Uh, I like how one preacher described the second emphasis. His name is Jim Hamilton. And he said the emphasis in this part of the passage is on the efficacy of God's word. The efficacy of God's word. God says it, and it happens. You can see that in this text as well, right? God says, come out, bring out, 
and it, it happens. John Calvin commented on this passage years ago. He said, Noah did not move a foot out of his sepulcher without the command of God. And so men and women, I want to stress what this part of the text is stressing, that, that this is my God. What he says will happen, will happen. And so again, be encouraged, brothers and sisters. If, if you are going through a trial, I think has been said around here for quite some time, if you're going through a trial, you are on the winning side. And nothing can stop our God. The waiting is done when God says it's done. It'll happen. So I want to emphasize the efficacy of God's word. It will happen. There's a little part of the story left. One final movement. So after a year trapped in the ark, what do you think you would do when God says go out? What would be your first move? Not all kinds of different thoughts. You know, first time that your foot touches dry ground in over a year inside this box, what would you do? I asked one of our submariners his answer to that question. He said after finding his family, of course, and loving them, which Noah has his family. He said after quite some time on sub, he said, I enjoy the smell of fresh air and plants and feeling the warmth of sunlight. I also enjoy the ability to go for a walk or a jog. Men and women, that describes a man after 75 to 100 days in a container in the water. What would Noah do? What do you think? What's his first move? Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So we move from receding water, to drying earth, to departing crew, to what I'll just call a worshiping Noah. A worshiping Noah. For the very first time in the Bible, there is an altar. The first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark, according to this text, is he engages in worship. I think this act reveals Noah's gratitude that God has brought him through the flood. And I just say this, men and women, what, what a precious moment. And what an impulse. Will this be your priority as well? Will your first impulse be worship? Will you so value it that you allow nothing, nothing to hinder your daily times of worship with the Lord? Will you so tr treasure worshiping with other brothers and sisters in Christ that you, you make it your regular pattern 
to worship him together with them on the Lord's day? Noah's first impulse is to worship God. And Noah's worship pleased God so that God determines never again to curse the world in this way. Earth will continue on throughout all of its seasons and times until the very end. Never will God destroy the earth with a universal flood again. In the end, it will be by fire. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter and Isaiah and Revelation before he creates a new heaven and a new earth. So men and women, is it taking a long time for your troubles to recede? You can trust God and give these things to him now. Let's go to the Lord and do that. Father, it's been a hard year for many in our body. So many different trials and struggles. I pray that they would learn from Noah and what you did for him. I pray that they would learn from the obedience of Noah. God said it, he did it. He continued right along. Even when perhaps it might be true that he hadn't heard from you in some time. Even when he was shut inside a box on the water for over a year, Noah obeyed. And he worshiped. Lord, may this be our impulse as well. At all times, whether in the waiting or when the waiting stops, might it be our first instinct. to build our own altar, to worship you and praise your glorious name. Lord, we are strangers and pilgrims who live here but for a short time. But you are the eternal God who have saved us through your blessed Son. Would you please use us as weak human flesh, the dust of the earth? Would you use us for your glory? And may we be content with that. Lord, please sustain my brothers and sisters. Perhaps some are struggling and don't even know how they could do this. May they take comfort that it's not through their strength that they will be faithful, but it's through your abiding and indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.